Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. My name is Rosie Dawson and in this podcast I'm joined by scholars working in the field of religion, the Bible and rape culture. Today my guest is Emily Colgan, a co-director of the Shiloh Project and senior lecturer in biblical studies at Trinity College in Auckland. Uh, It's your evening time, um, Emily, and uh, there's a storm raging. It is. It's very dramatic outside, um, but we're tucked up inside. It's nice and warm. And uh, here in England in the uh, morning, we have um, a rare, very hot day in September. So, Emily... um, you do a lot of work um, on ecological representations in the Bible and what it means to read scripture in the context of climate change. Just tell me a little bit about the focus for your work at the moment. Sure. So I am really interested in the the representations of, of particularly land, um, earth, other than human beings, I guess, creatures in the biblical text and um, how some of those um, images resonate in our contexts today um, and inform the way that we think about and behave um, towards those creatures, um, the earth, in kind of our contemporary contexts. Tell me how you came to the Hebrew Bible. Did you grow up with it? Not really, no. Um, so I started uh, university studying arts and music. I was doing an arts degree in Māori studies and English and a music degree in voice. Uh, and I randomly picked up a theology paper. It was a Hebrew Bible paper, and I just fell head over heels in love. Um, I'm fascinated by ancient history. Uh, I think the Bible as an ancient sacred text just completely captivated me. It still kind of captivates me. Um, And I dropped the music degree and took up a theology degree alongside the arts. It's funny how many people seem to have that experience. I remember Katie yeah. Edwards had the same experience reading English literature and then suddenly she just randomly took a paper and that was it. How from there did you get into the sort of the perspectives on land? Is it just because it's so present in the Hebrew scriptures or the bits that you were studying? So around the time I started studying theology in the early 2000s, uh, an ecological hermeneutic was being developed by the Earth Bible Project in Adelaide in Australia. Um, which kind of developed a method for reading the Bible from an ecological perspective. And the professor of our theology department uh, and my mentor, the utterly incredible Elaine Wainwright, um, was a foundational member of that project. um, And her work has been hugely, hugely influential on me. Uh, And so, yeah, it it was was kind of um, part of my theological education right from the beginning. Um, But it wasn't until I got into postgrad work that I really picked up and ran with the ecological side of things. Now you mentioned I think uh, Maori studies you said um, we, we pronounce it Maori over here. Um, yeah the correct pronunciation is Maori and, and lots of lots of English speakers Pākehā people in New Zealand don't pronounce it correctly either so we try to honour that honour that language honour the people um, and it's a sign of respect so we yeah say Maori. And one of the things I think that you have been drawn to are the parallels that you have found between the Maori world and, and, the, and the Hebrew world? Yeah, as I was learning about the Hebrew Bible um, in an academic context in the theology department, I was kind of simultaneously studying uh, in the university's Maori studies department. And one of the things I think that became very clear to me was the strong resonances between some of the con- concepts we find in the Hebrew Bible 
and some of the concepts that were, that are found in Te Ao Māori or the Māori world. Um, and this is particularly the case when we think about the earth and other than human communities which are seen as interconnected subjects in their own right subjects with agency, um, with their own lineage, with their own life force. Uh, and I think, I think Western theology generally and biblical studies in particular have a lot to learn from indigenous perspectives and, and these voices have a, need to be a lot more prominent in, in these contexts than they currently are. Where did you sort of spot that in particular, perhaps? So there are, within kind of Māori ways of thinking, genealogy, for example, is very important. And humans obviously have genealogies, but so so do uh, elements of the natural world. So a mountain, for example, a maunga, um, will have a genealogy. A river will have a genealogy. Um, and we see that as well in, in the Hebrew Bible. You know, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Um, and there, there is, so there are some, some, I think there are some um, really interesting and um, wonderful resonances there. There's a word which sounds very rude, but which is the Maori word for genealogy. Uh, yeah, it depends on where you're from in, in New Zealand. Some, some um, tribes or iwi will say hakapapa, some will say huakapapa, some will say whakapapa. Maybe we'd go and... with one of the first two. <laughs> They're all correct. Um, you're interested in the idea of land as a character. In, in the Bible. And I, I wonder again whether there's something um, illustrative of that in the New Zealand context where, you know, you, you've got a river, haven't you, that, that has got a, a legal personhood, that's got legal status, almost as if it is a person. Yeah, uh, this is a relatively recent thing and, and um, there are other kind of environmental entities that are, as I understand it, going to be recognised in the same way. And, and essentially, yeah, um, the Whanganui River um, has been recognised as having, in, in a legal sense, as kind of having personhood or um, I think the legalities of it are a little bit technical. But yeah, it's it's kind of, and I think that's that's one of the things that, that we pick up on in an ecological hermeneutic um, or an ecological kind of reading of, of scriptures is kind of um, focusing in on that personhood or that character of earth, of land, of other than human creatures at the within the text. And so in ecological interpretation, earth and other than human inhabitants of earth are not kind of the background against which the, the divine human drama is, is played out. Um, characters have in inherent worth, um, they have agency, they have subjectivity. Um, characters are understood as having voices, voice which can be raised in celebration um, and praise, um, but also can, can be heard resisting violence and, and injustice. The mountains um, and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Exactly, yes. yeah. So... Eco, eco hermeneutic and an ecological hermeneutic draws kind of quite strongly on on feminist methodologies, but where feminist criticism asks questions about women in the biblical text, ecological criticism puts the earth and other than human creatures at the centre of the interpretation and asks questions of its presence there. Um, are there a couple of other really famous examples other than that one of Isaiah I've just um, quoted? Sure, yeah, no, there, there are a number of places where the voice and agency of, of Earth and other than human um, characters can be seen, can be heard. For example, in uh, Leviticus 18.25, the Earth vomits out her inhabitants because of defilement and iniquity. 
Um, throughout the prophets, we see the earth trembling, writhing, languishing, mourning. In Jeremiah 12, um, there's this desperate cry, how long will the earth mourn? The heavens and the waters praise God in the Psalms. And it's not, not just the Hebrew Bible, you know, in, in Luke 19, we hear even the stones crying out. Um, it's not always that obvious, um, and sometimes we have to listen quite carefully to hear the earth's presence um, in between the words and the letters of, on the page. There's another very colourful image in Isaiah, which is of a, uh, the land as a character which is feeling the wrath of God, where the earth reels like a drunkard, it sways like a hut in the wind, so heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion. Now I there see a, a scruffy male drunkard, um, but generally you see a gendered aspect to the the land don't you yeah no i mean <laughs> i see that i see a scruffy male drunkard as well um and there are uh, there are a wide range of images used to depict earth in the biblical text um and and some of these images are gendered um using what we might call male in- imagery but overwhelmingly i think in the biblical text the earth um is gendered as female where particularly do you see, do you see this in relation to um, the prophets? What we see throughout the biblical text, but in the prophets in particular, um, is this kind of fusion between women and earth. Um, and and on one level, it's kind of inherent in the fact that the words associated with earth, eretz and adama and so on, um, are grammatically feminine. Um, but I think also the imagery associated with Earth as a character is imagery which is stereotypically associated with women, particularly imagery around sexual violation. And in the Prophets, for example, we often encounter imagery where a number of bodies are kind of fused. Um, There's this kind of fusion in kind of dense symbolic complexes where the land or the earth becomes a metaphor for a woman's body which in turn is symbolic of the social body and so so israel as a woman israel which is both land and a person presented as a woman yeah and and sometimes the social body is described as as you've said as a place as woman so daughter zion or daughter babylon or you know the wicked sisters israel and judah or the daughters jerusalem and samaria um so these are places and people um, who are imaged as women. And wicked. Yeah. As opposed to the almighty masculine God. Yeah, and, and, and so often we see kind of descriptions of human indiscretions, kind of human iniquity, transferred onto the bodies of both women and land, and then in turn the punishment for that wickedness, which is ultimately kind of directed at the social body, is inscribed onto the bodies of women and land again. You're particularly interested in reading the book of Jeremiah, I think. So can you just give me, very briefly, the, his, his context and, and his, his time, the time when he was around? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, broadly speaking, <laughs> um, Jeremiah is operating, is acting, um, within a context of conflict and ultimately impending exile. Um, he's speaking... Um, in and around Judah, Jerusalem. There's a lot going on in international politics at the time that Jeremiah is speaking, but it's a context of turmoil, it's violent, there's stress with the ever-present kind of threat from the north, which is, of course, Babylon. So we have this constant critique of the way things are, couched in terms of rampant injustice and idolatry 
and the threat of exile if the people don't change their ways, but there are also moments of hope and beauty and comfort um, that intersperse this ruthless critique and point to the way in which things might be. Um, but he's 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 talking. He, he's he's around in the run up really to the fall of Jerusalem and uh, um, in five eight seven and and the carrying off of the Israelites into exile. Yes, that's right. And and so, I mean, on one level, of course, this historical context is crucially important, um, but on another level, it doesn't really matter that much because I'm also quite interested in exploring the rhetoric and the imagery um, and its impact on contemporary contexts as well. But, yeah, essentially we're kind of talking um, in and around that, that 586, 587, 586 mark. Um. And he employs this metaphor that is already very um, common in earlier prophets, um, particularly Hosea, but the idea of um, Israel as a harlot, um, as as a a prostitute. Um, So you see that in Jeremiah 3, where faithless Israel has gone up on every high hill and under every green tree to prostitute herself. Do you see the fusion of the land and the woman's body there? Yeah, I, I think so. So so this text, Jeremiah 3, is part of a larger metaphor, which um, we find um, particularly um, in the first kind of initial chapters of Jeremiah, which talk about Israel's apostasy in terms of broken family relationships and the resulting abuse within those relationships. And so God is imaged as the husband and Israel um, is imaged as the place and the people and the land. And that's where we kind of get that fusion when you come to Jeremiah 6, this is where you particularly see um, a very strong identification of the land and the woman. Can you um, explain to me what Jeremiah 6 is about? And then we'll look at some of it in a little bit more detail. Sure. So the subject of this poem is Daughter Zion, uh, which on one level is a reference to people, but it extends beyond the human community to the place, Zion or Jerusalem. Um, And so we have the land identified as daughter. And according to the text, this delicate pasture that is daughter Zion is the subject of attack. God has announced that daughter Zion will be destroyed. And so this is a, a war text. We hear the sound of the shofar. We see the mustering of the troops as God, the Lord of armies, consecrates an attack on the woman who is the city. And it's a poem outlining this attack. So I'll just read a tiny bit of the poem. It says, I will destroy daughter Zion, so beautiful and delicate. Shepherds with their flocks will come against her. They will pitch their tents round her, each tending his own portion. Now, I'm not reading the Hebrew, so I might not get some of this. But you see, um, I think you write that there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of sexual element to this. There's a there's a logic which um, suggests a sort of male penetrative God and a feminised and passive land. Can you just unpack unpack it a bit for me? Sure. So I, I guess this is an eco-feminist reading, essentially, because you're right, as we take into, the, as we take into consideration the gendered interaction um, of the characters in the text, um, we have this masculine God attacking this feminised land in terms which are strongly reminiscent of rape, I think. Uh, and so the land as woman, the daughter Zion, the delicate pasture, is on divine instruction invaded by the masculine shepherds and sheep who encircle the cities and, quote, come upon her. 
which is a Hebrew phrase used in other contexts to refer to sexual intercourse. And so we have the singular feminine city being attacked, being sexually attacked by a group of male attackers. And so read from this perspective, I think we're witnessing the, the, the gang rape of, a, of the delicate pasture that is daughter Zion. And finally, the attackers kind of strip this delicate pasture of all her foliage, so she's nude and vulnerable, and they penetrate the city's most protected places, the palaces, and we have kind of absolute submission being attained. So cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty mm. says. Um, mm. you, you, the, the shepherds will come against her. They will pitch their tents round her. Now... You see a sort of um, sexual innuendo in, in that pitching of the tents. Yes. Do we want to get into that? I, it's, I think it's we quite do. Kind of detailed. Um, this is quite an obscure um, phrase in, in the Hebrew. They're pitching their tents around the city and they kind of encircle this, encircle the city, which again has that kind of claustrophobic, impending, suffocating kind of fe- feeling. So I think there's a degree of sexual innuendo in in the verb to pitch, which can also mean to thrust. Um, presumably, I think on one level, referring to the way in which a pen, a peg is is kind of driven into the ground. But again, we have if we if we're attentive to the innuendo, we also hear and see there the masculine act of of sex, where um, thrusting aids penile penetration. Um, and so again, if we're reading. Um, uh, with this kind of eco-feminist lens, the metaphorical woman land is penetrated by these male assailants um, in a sign of military might and, and victory. So the tent pegs are thrust into the soil by the shepherds who penetrate the land in this kind of symbolic act of possession and, and domination. I'm trying to think about how this might have been uh, received by the people who heard Jeremiah. They will have been, they will have got the sort of sexual innuendo um, and I wonder if it makes it all the more menacing, you know, that it isn't sort of spelt out. The sexual threat's not spelt out, but it's there. Yeah, I think, I think for modern readers as well, kind of because it is, because it is kind of, it, it exists just below um, the surface in hints and winks and, and nods. Um, but it's almost more insidious because it sits just below the surface. Um, it's more difficult to name. Um, it's more difficult to critique um, because we can't easily put our finger on it um, unless we're engaging at this kind of depth of analysis. Do you really need to know Hebrew, though, in order to understand it? I mean, you know, you've had to sort of unpack the meaning of Hebrew words to impress upon me, you know, what's happening here. Um, And so in a scholarly context, that's, you know, all very important. But for contemporary readers who aren't scholars, how important is it that they sort of get this? I mean, on one level, I don't think you need to know Hebrew or, or Greek in order to be attentive to the Earth's presence in the biblical text. I think it's more about the lens that we bring to the text, the questions that we ask of a text, the way that we come to a text looking for earth, looking for earths other than human creatures. 
But on another level, I do think that a knowledge of Hebrew, if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, is useful if you want to dig down deeper and analyze the representations in a little more depth, if you want more nuance to your interpretation. And I, I don't think this is exclusive to an ecological reading of a text. I think this is true of any reading of a biblical text, if you want to have a greater depth to your analysis. Um, do we need perhaps translators who, who have a particular lens, who are looking out particular things when they're translating? Because you can translate this in so many different ways, can't you? Uh, to, yeah. to make the, um, the innuendo more or less explicit. Absolutely. And, and that's why I think often we, we forget that translation is also interpretation. Um, and there's a level of, of interpretation that, that we as readers of Bibles that have been translated into English or Māori or Samoan or <laughs> Greek or, uh, sorry, not Greek, um, or, you know, German or, there's already been a level of interpretation of the text that happens for us before we even open our texts. Okay, so why, why is it so important that um, we, we attend to these translations, to this understanding of what's going on? So let's go back to the, the Jeremiah 6 passage, because I think if we take that analysis um, of the text, we can see that by joining the language of sexual and military violence, we can see underlined the role of gender in determining power, in determining relationships of power between women and men, between humanity, God and the earth. And so the subtext of this passage, for example, is power and control of God and men over earth and women. And so we find a symbolic world that permits control by force, men and God over women and earth. And without critique of these dynamics, I think we run the risk of these becoming eternal traits of women and earth. Um, and so words, I think, particularly sacred words, have huge power to shape our reality. And in a sense, these texts have the power to create, the power to destroy. The rhetoric has the potential to act and impact the lived experience of readers. They have the power to define what is normal, what is acceptable in terms of the way we relate to each other, um, in terms of the way we relate to the world around us. And so we need to be careful and critical, I think, of accepting at face value some of these texts which hold profoundly problematic and dangerous ideologies. Where do you find the earth speaking up for herself? Um, sometimes it's easy and obvious to hear the, the earth speaking out um, and, and when we have you know, references to the earth mourning um, or shaking or trembling or writhing or languishing. Those are more kind of obvious uh, examples of the voice of the earth. But most of the time, I think, listening for the voice of Earth and Earth's other than human creatures is about listening carefully and closely reading the text for signs of rupture, however small, in the text and exploring those ruptures a little bit further. So again, going back to that Jer Jeremiah 6 poem, Right in the middle of the poem, we hear Jerusalem, the city, people, land, woman, fusion, cry out in this kind of strangled gasp, woe to us. And so for me, 
I'd see this as a rupture in the text, a cry of protest at the horrific violation depicted in the text. And so for me, I hear in that cry the voices that resist powerlessness and rape and reject systems that normalise and enable that kind of abuse. I hear the voices of the city's people and the woman and the land unified in denouncing sexual violence and kind of crying out desperately for justice. So in verse 4, we've got this this snippet, this um, tiny phrase, this kind of strangled gasp, woe to us for the day declines. Um, and in that woe is that, for me, is that rupture that um, reveals or exposes the voice of earth lamenting. Which you could very easily miss couldn't you i mean i did in my translation I, I mean i kind of assumed it was still the the people who were carrying out the assault that were speaking there but you're saying that's the voice of jerusalem that's my reading of the text i, I there are other readings of the text which which would say yeah that is that is the still the voice of the perpetrators but i think if we listen to the text carefully we um, take into con- context or ca- take into consideration um, that sense of grief of of woe I think it's easily arguable <laughs> that this is the voice of, of Jerusalem. Um, uh, so in this podcast series generally we're trying to be attentive to the the voice and experience of um of, of women um, in these texts. Um, here we're trying also to be attentive to the voice of the land. How does all this speak into the climate emergency? This is, <laughs> is such a big question. Um, because obviously the analysis of, of these texts and, and the concerns raised don't pretend by any means to um, solve the intricate and, and co- complex issues specific to the climate crisis, which, as we know, are are intersectional. Um, We need to see the climate crisis alongside um, other issues of oppression, um, like the issue of of the oppression of women, um, the oppression of Indigenous people, um, issues of poverty. These are all intersectional issues. They're utterly um, interrelated. But I think in taking seriously the land, earth, other than human beings, women even as well in the te- as characters in the text, by taking them seriously as subjects and agents with their own voice, with inherent worth, I think there's the potential to assist our theological thinking by providing an alternative to the patriarchal anthropocentric outlook, which is so often implicit in our everyday ideas about justice, about morality, about everyday relationality. Um, And I think this kind of analysis enables us to reconceive the relationship between God, earth and humanity in a way that looks towards the flourishing of all. What are you working on at the moment? I'm currently working on an ecological commentary on the book of Jeremiah for the Earth Bible series. I am co-editing um, the Rutledge Handbook on Eve with the wonderful Caroline Blythe. Those are the two main projects that, that I've got going at the moment. And what has getting involved with the Shiloh Project brought to your work? One of the things that I really 
love about being involved with the Shiloh Project is the multiplicity of voices and just the huge range of passionate people um, and the different perspectives that they bring to these issues that are just so utterly urgent and critical um, in our in our time. Um, and, and working with the Shiloh team just gives me so much hope. Um, <laughs> and um, the collaboration that happens with with the Shiloh um, contributors. Um, and these are just really amazing and exciting and important resources um, that I use um, in my teaching, uh, that I use um, if I'm giving papers or presentations, whether it's in an academic context, whether it's in a church context. These are just um, such important resources um, that, that really need to be out there. Well, thank you for adding to that resource in um, joining our podcast and in all your other work. So I have to get on with my day and you've got to wind down <laughs> and get some sleep. To bed. To bed. Um, thank you everybody for listening. Please subscribe to the Shiloh podcast at the Shiloh podcast. That's all one word. .captivate.fm or from wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about it. Send us your feedback. Leave a review. Our website is www.shilohprojectblog or if you Google the Shiloh Project, it should just come up and you can follow us on Twitter at ProjShiloh. Thanks again, Emily. Good night. Thanks Goodbye, so much. Everyone.